Christmas. You know, you uh, get in the, uh, the habit, you get in the routine, you decorate, you, uh, you read the Scripture. Remember, keep in mind, there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Say it with me. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Only two of them contain the Christmas story, at least the story that we're most familiar with. By far the most read the most widely known, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. The beautiful story of a baby born in a manger. It's Matthew chapter 2 that tells us a, a little bit more about that story, about kings from the east who came to find what the answer was to a star that they saw in the heavens. It also tells us about a despotic ruler, a king, Herod, his treachery, his ability to incite evil everywhere he went. Mark doesn't say anything about the birth of Jesus. If you turn to Mark chapter 1, Jesus is 30 years old. He's at at the uh, banks of the Jordan River and John the Baptist baptizes him and away we go. He's in a hurry to tell us the story of salvation. So it's not that he doesn't think Christmas is important, I'm sure, but he just had a message that he knew he only had a certain amount of time to give it, and so he just put it out there. And John, John's Christmas story, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we behold his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It's a very strange way to describe the birth of Jesus, but it's perfect. You've got all four of those perspectives. Well, when you turn to Luke chapter 2 and you begin to read and you put together the characters of the story, it often seems that we're rushing there, and we should, that it is our going after the baby in the manger, which is a biblical thought. But we sometimes forget that really all of this is not about us rushing up to a manger to peek inside, to see what's there. But it's God pursuing us. It is his relentless pursuit of you and me. That's what we're talking about. That's how we're, what perspective we're viewing the Christmas story in these weeks of Advent, the season, the Sundays of Christmas. And we're going right along. There's a whole lot of material to cover today, so I'm going to ask you to kind of fasten your seatbelt, stay with me, because this part of the pursuit that we look at today is its miraculous. You remember, it goes all the way back. God's pursuing us based upon that choice that Adam and Eve made in the Garden of Eden. You went from a beautiful garden where mankind enjoyed the fruit that God had provided, a perfect setting to live out one's life, but not didn't take too long before all that changed. And the Bible is in a real big hurry, it seems, to get past Adam and Eve and talk about their children, to talk about murder, to talk about hatred, to talk about... A, 
civilization that as time moves on through those first 11 chapters of Genesis that you have God just getting fed up with everything and destroying his creation. Save a family because of a covenant that God made. Because you know, God deals with us. He pursues us with covenants, not contracts, but initiatives on his part. We looked and found that God also took a man named Abram and challenged him and made a promise to him. Abram had to meet God halfway, if you will. Some of those covenants have some conditions on them. And in order for Abram to receive the blessing, the descendants that would number the stars, he had to leave his homeland of Ur, which he did. And he came to the land of promise that God said would belong to Abraham and his descendants who would number the stars. Those covenants were all about God pursuing us. You remember, God himself walked through that blood path of those animals that had been split in half. Very strange way and thing, a way to think about an agreement. But that was in a different day and a different time. And when Abram had taken those animals and had butchered them and spread their carcasses opposite one another, leaving a path in between, he fell asleep, the Bible says. And God signed and took on the covenant, both his part and Abram's part. His part and our part, God took care of it. But that's not the only covenant that God made. We find that God made a covenant with Moses and the entire nation of Israel, for that matter, the Israelites. You remember they were in bondage in Egypt. God had already told Abram when he made that covenant with him that he would give him a land of promise, but it wasn't going to be a smooth path all along. But there would be some suffering. There would be some tragedy. And indeed, I would call 400 years of slavery akin to a tragedy, to a great miscarriage of justice. But God's people found themselves in bondage in Egypt for 400 years. And the Bible says in Exodus chapter 2, verse 24, that God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. Keep in mind, this whole story of Scripture, when God hears the cry of someone... It reaches his ears. When God hears his people cry out, he listens. And when God hears our cry, he acts upon the fact that he heard it, that he's pursuing us. Well, we know from looking back at this story, we're just making some broad general summary statements about it. He chose Moses to lead the people out of bondage. But do you remember Moses had a few problems. He had a hard time remembering what was right and what was wrong. Moses actually committed murder, the Bible tells us. That he let his temper get the best of him. And in a, what you might say, a moment of righteous indignation, took a human life. It took the timetable pushed it out a little bit because Moses fled knowing that he was a capital offender and he lived 40 years in a faraway distant land until God 
saw that it was the perfect time to deal with Moses and to bring him back to where he needed to be. And God did just that. And Moses agreed to go back and to take on the responsibility of leading the people out of bondage. You remember they were set free. And they journeyed several days, passed through uh, the Red Sea and came in the middle of nowhere to this desert spot called Sinai, mountain. And it was there, check me, it was there that God for the first time spoke to an entire nation of people. You're not going to find it happening anywhere else until this point. And God chose to do it, not in the capital city of some great empire. He didn't choose to do it anywhere except in the middle of nowhere. I think that's wonderful. That there was no way to tie God's word and God's message to any geographical point or any Pharaoh or, or any other place other than right smack dab in the middle of a desert. And there God spoke and gave a covenant made an agreement with the people, sent Moses to the top of that mountain. He came down, but he didn't quite make it all the way down with those tablets of stone, you remember. Once again, the anger of Moses got the best of him. And when Moses realized the people had turned to idolatry, once again, he smashed those tablets. But it's over there in Exodus thirty-four twenty-seven. The Lord said to Moses, Write down these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. He did not eat bread or drink water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Now, this is the second time God gave the law to Moses. First time? Ended with them being shattered before Moses made it to the bottom of the mountain. But he goes up again. Because you see, God is pursuing us. He didn't give up on us. He didn't give up on Moses. That law... You know, we, we often talk and we read the New Testament back into things that the law is our tutor. The law draws us to God. The law points out the fact that we're incapable of keeping it. All those things are true. But I want you to think about it this way. The law was God's way of telling us we can be human again. The law in all of its beauty, even though it was never intended to save any of us, it rightfully should remind us that we can live in peace, relative peace, that we can do right by one another, that we can be human. That's why God gave it to us in the first place. But over there in Leviticus 26, this is... After the giving of the law, this is, well, he says, yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them, nor will I so abhor them as to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. 
I will remember for them the covenant with their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. God is speaking through Moses here in this passage, and he's looking way down the road to the future when the children of Israel will take that land of promise, but they will, they will turn away. God says, even when they do, I will remember what? My contract? No. My covenant. I will remember and I will be faithful for I am the Lord. You see, this whole thing about Christmas, I mean, we've run to the manger and that's all right. But everything really has been pointing toward God pursuing us. He is coming after us and he will not stop. So he made that covenant with Moses and the nation. And we know where that ended up. Well, then there's hope because later on down the road of history, the people get a king. His name was David. That's why the Bible tells us that Jesus was from the city of David, Bethlehem. David's a big deal. If you talk to anybody today who knows anything about Jewish history, especially if you go over to Israel and you talk to people who are looking and are serious about their faith, they're going to tell you that they could have one thing. They'd want to take things back to the way it was when David was their king. He is the golden ruler. He's the one who brought them together. He's the one who moved the capital of Jerusalem in the first place. Jerusalem, known as Zion, the mountain. David, the greatest of them all. Well, we know what happened to David, don't we? Adultery. Murder. A failure. You see, no human king. It doesn't seem that any of those kings could obey. God made a covenant with David's son, Solomon. And once again, way back before Solomon was ever born, before he was conceived, back in the days of Moses, Moses talked about the king, not necessarily putting a personal name to it, but he was saying the king over the people. There's a checklist. There's a a job description. There are some expectations of those of that person who would serve as king. Was he talking about Saul? Yes. Saul failed. Was he talking about David? Yes. David failed. Was he talking about Solomon? Absolutely. Solomon, if anyone had the opportunity to turn things around, to right the ship, to lead the people in the paths of obedience, it would be Solomon. Why is this man on the face of the earth? Well, Moses gives that checklist for the king centuries before Solomon was ever born. And what did Moses say? He says, moreover, the king shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. He shall not multiply wives for himself or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. That's the job description. Well, let's see what kind of report card Solomon has. Question number one, did Solomon acquire many horses? 
Well, first King, Kings chapter 10, verse 26 says he had only 1,400 chariots. You do the math. Question number two. Did Solomon take many wives? Only 700. <laughs> That's first Kings chapter 11, verse Three. Once again, different day, different culture. We can't relate to it. By wives, it means concubines, women servants. But everyone who was at the beck and call of the king, Solomon had 700. Was Solomon's heart turned away? First Kings 11.4 says absolutely yes. That the enamorment with power, with horses, was setting up a defensive Fortification to protect the king's property. The taking on of hundreds of wives. All of these things turned the king's heart away from God. Did Solomon amass, amass much gold? First Kings 10.14 tells us 666 talents. That's 25 tons of gold annually. Every year. Interesting. 666. You know, we skip all the way over to that last book of the Bible, the book of the Revelation. And there's that 666 number there, a mark of a beast. Keep in mind, 666 had some meaning even way back in this day. For seven is the number of perfection in Scripture. Seven days of creation. Seven is just... It, it's. It's an astounding, miraculous, divine number. So six is what? Six is a knockoff. Six is a perversion. Six is a number of incompleteness. To be one-off perfection is to show that something is going on here that is not of God. Something is anti-God. Something is wrong. Could that be why the writer tells us that Solomon amassed that specific amount, 666 talents, 25 tons of gold that came into his treasury every year? Once again, no human king could obey. The covenant started with Abraham, no, excuse me, Noah, then Abraham, then Moses, then David, then Solomon. None of them could keep up with it. You see, I, I sense a pattern here. Follow me here. Egypt. Egypt is the place of slavery. This is where the people ended up. This is where they were for 400 years, forced into labor. Not servants. A servant who is forced is no longer a servant but a slave. Egypt represents where the people were. Sinai. The people left Egypt 
and ended up at Sinai, where God spoke to the entire nation. What did he do? What did Sinai do for these people? Sinai was a place where they realized where they had stepped off the track. Sinai was the place where when they cried out and they realized God had heard them, they made it. Sinai is the place where God spoke to them. He gave them the law. Sinai is where they realized their potential. It's where they realized that this was just an intermediate stop along the way, that God had something great, God had something amazing for these people. A promised land, but it was at Sinai where they took stock of it. Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, the capital. But the place where it's very obvious that what? It's in Jerusalem where Solomon got comfortable. It's in Jerusalem where they began to bow up with pride. It was in Jerusalem where the blessings of God in this magnificent capital city set on top of a hill, Mount Zion. It was in Jerusalem where they forgot to count their blessings and They didn't take their blessings and use them to bless others. They took the blessings as though it was their right, as though they were owed this prosperity. Babylon. Babylon is where all this ended up. Babylon is where the prophet spoke after Solomon and warned the people The judgment was coming. Warned the people that they would be scattered across the known world. And they were. 722 B.C., the Assyrian Empire came and made it as far as the north kingdom of Israel. Destroyed those ten tribes. Never heard from again in the same way. The south kingdom, whose capital was in Jerusalem... They lasted until 586 B.C. when the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, came in and destroyed the city, tore down the walls, desecrated the temple, and sent the Jews into exile. Babylon sounds a lot like Egypt, doesn't it? in Babylon where the Jews realized what had happened. It's Psalm 127 verse 1 that describes what the people were doing. If you think about it, you can can hear them. By the waters The waters of Babylon We lay down and wept And wept For thee, Zion We remember, we Remember, we Remember thee, Zion From Egypt to Sinai to Jerusalem to Babylon. 
slaves again. Not servants, slaves. And they wept at the banks of the rivers of Babylon because they were far removed from the current of the river, the Jordan. From the Sea of Galilee to the north, as it snaked all its way, all the way down, all the way through. They come full circle. It's a vicious cycle. They're back in bondage again. You see, folks, the story of Moses, of David, of Solomon, it's our story. We look ourselves and we see ourselves in the mirror of these pages. For let me ask you a question. Have you ever felt unforgivable? You ever felt like you've just gone a step too far in disobedience? I mean, what else would Moses have thought after he committed murder? What about David? I mean, how depraved can a person be to... Take another man's wife and then send that husband innocently, an innocent human being, into a battle knowing that he would be killed to cover up your immorality and your deceit. Ever felt unforgivable? Solomon, the wisest man on the face of the earth, but yet the dumbest. You ever felt guilt and shame? Not every once in a while, but 24-7. You live daily, replaying in your brain the mistakes, the faux pas, the disobedience. See, their story is our story. But don't forget, What happens in Egypt? What happens after Sinai when you see the potential? What happens in Jerusalem when all is wonderful until you realize you've crossed over to the darkness once again and you end up in Babylon, in slavery once again? What do you do? You cry out. You cry out to God. And what does God do? He hears. He's listening. And Psalm 89 tells us what God does with us. If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod, their iniquity with stripes, But I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. What a great God we serve. And he's told us, he's shown us all the way through history. Just just, just land on those places. Just go back to Egypt. Take it to Sinai when you woke up and you realized what I was giving you, the opportunities and the days of prosperity. Go to Jerusalem. But don't forget 
What brought you there? Don't forget the blessings. When your blessings turn into just ways to satisfy your own selfish desires, then beware because you're going to end up in slavery. You'll be in Babylon. You'll be crying by the river. Crying out. You see, God has an answer. It's in Jesus. Remember, I say Jesus the Christ. I know we say Jesus Christ, but that sounds like first name, last name. No. Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Christ. Christ is Greek for Messiah in Hebrew. Jesus the Christ, the Lord of lords and the King of kings. You see, there would be a king. There would be born a king who would obey, who would save us. As good as David tried, as much as Solomon tried, they failed. And how many kings after them? Too many to count. But it would all be wrapped up in God pursuing us and leading us to a manger. So where do you want to live? Where you are? You in Babylon? Egypt? Sania? Smiling at the future? Jerusalem? Taking advantage of the blessings and using them for ultimate good? Or closing those fists of generosity? Because God owes you something. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to come before you to make a quick tour of so many passages in Scripture, but yet, hopefully, to get the point that you pursue us, that you're relentless. Help us to understand and know that we fail, but you're faithful, and that your covenant you will not turn away from. It's these things we pray in the name of Christ Jesus the Lord. Amen. Well, thanks for staying with me. That was a a big load of truth. I just hope that you can apply it to your own life, wherever you find yourself. Because that's not going to change. Just remember that cycle. Remember those places. They're real places. They represent every single part of our lives. Egypt, Sinai, Jerusalem, Babylon, over and over again. Well, let's, let's give thanks and let's, let's be grateful that God took care of things once and for all when Jesus was born and when Jesus went to a cross and when Jesus rose from the dead. And as Jesus now waits for the appointed time that only God knows when he will, bring, he will return and bring us where we need to be. Do you know Jesus? Do you love him? Have you ever asked him to take control of your life, to become a follower of Jesus, to become a Christian? Not join a church, not get baptized, 
but to make that choice to say yes to him. We want to invite you to make that choice today. If you've already made it, but just never told anyone, never understood and followed through with becoming part of a church family, we want to ask you to profess your faith in Jesus before us today. Maybe you've never been baptized before. Let's talk about what it means, why it's important. It's God's idea. It's God's command, not ours. And you do need a church family. That's how God is at work. He works through his church. And that church is a place. It's in a particular spot on the face of the earth. Yes, it's the universal church, understand, but just go back and read the New Testament. Those were real life people in real life places who dealt with matters of faith. And we learn from them. So how do you join a church like ours? You come forward. That's the beginning. So we invite you to do just that. But for most of us, Egypt, Sinai, Jerusalem, Babylon. What are you going to do? Where do you choose to live? That's our invitation. I ask you to stand with us as God leads. You step forward.